What if everything you thought of health and wellness suddenly changed due to a hidden breathing problem that you were unaware of that affects every system in your body? Improper breathing habits are often overlooked in medicine. I'm Dr. Jenny from the Hobson Institute, and this is The Breathing Lab. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Beauty of Breathing podcast. My name is Dr. Jennifer Hobson, and I am Dr. Martha Cortez. And we will be interviewing Dr. Karen Davidson. Oh, Dr. Hobson. This is Dr. Karen Davidson. She is the leading national expert in rhinomanometry. I have to send you with an accent. <laughs> and she's leading there in England. Uh, there's much more of this utilized than in America. So she is here to teach us and really bring us to a higher level because you need to measure your nose, right? Yes. Let, let me tell you. Resistance. Uh -huh. Let me tell you a little bit about her bio, just so you have a little background about her. Dr. Da Karen Davidson was has held many positions in the medical device industry for more than 25 years, uh, specifically in the ENT and the sleep markets, in addition to more than 30 years of clinical experience, including service as a flight nurse in the US Air Force Reserves and committee member for various otolaryngology meetings. Dr. David Davidson serves as the VP at GM Instruments with a special interest in, the, in, in and published on the technology of objective nasal measurements, nasal physiology, clinical application, reimbursement, health and economics, and health policy. She's actually also an adjunct professor at Central Michigan University and the Liberty University. So welcome, Dr. Davidson. Thank you so much for taking the time to educate us and be with us this, this morning. Good morning, and thank you for having me. This is a pleasure, thank you. I wanna say thank you, Dr. Davidson, because I may sound like a commercial, but the rhinometry <laughs> has actually made such a difference in the practice. Even though I'm a neonate, we are being able to differentiate those children that the parents say there's nothing really wrong. Everybody says they're fine. They're just breathing through their mouth and everything is good. So then I put them on the actual, I said, well, let's measure it. Let's so you, you have this in your office, yes. Martha? Okay, yes. so you've been working with Dr. Davidson. Yes, yes. Okay. I'm, I'm a neonate though, but it's me such a, even two weeks ago. So the mother insisted there was nothing wrong. So what I did, measure it. It's an opinion. All these people are giving opinions. I measured it. It shows that he's already mild apneic, OSA, obstructive already going on moderate apnea. So this kid, despite the mouth breathing, despite supposedly the, the, the clinical exams, he's already obstructing. So he's getting 20% less oxygen on every day, every night. And on top of it, it's so showing already um, obstruction, which means his IQ is going down. I don't care what, and his reflexes. And so I referred him to, uh, uh, Dr. Gildan for the physical therapy, mm -hmm. who know, then evaluated further and said his reflexes, his primitive reflexes are still there. So the kid is doing badly. Yes, yes. That was because like that one measurement. She wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't believe it until the measurement. And you know what, Dr. Martha, you bring up a survival point, especially in infants, because they will nasal and oral breathe for about six months. And this is part of our book as well about the tongue ties and how this all develops. And, and we know, we know that 
the first bone that is created in utero is the maxillary bone. And it's interesting how over time and growth and development that the wee bit of cells that we are to where we are today um, is such a huge spectrum of breathing. And to that end, when we look at the history, just in measurements, objective nasal measurements, it, this has been around forever, literally, since, since 1894, actually, when they looked at, oh. yeah, they looked at refrigeration and vapor that you were breathing out of your nose. But more importantly, we, through biblical times in Genesis 2-7, we were meant to breathe life through our nose. Wow, I didn't know so, we had that. Yeah, and so when you look at the trajectory of how this has all come about and the historical perspective of it, we go back to 1894. And then 1938 is when they looked at the mirror. So a lot of myofunctional therapists will use the mirror to see how much condensation is right. coming out of the nose, right? That was back in 1938. And then 1958 is when the first um, description of nasal patency came about, and that was from Dr. Semtrak. And then it goes into more. So we all know Dr. Cottle, Cottle Maneuver. Absolutely. In 1968, he brought the concept of rhinomanometry into the world of rhinology. Huh. And we fast forward, 1970 is when wow. the first computerized first computerized rhinomanometry came to market. Very archaic looking. Remember the old DOS systems yes. <laughs> in the 70s? Yeah. So that's what it was. Then you go through all these different modifications um, where rhinomanometry was FDA approved in 1990. <laughs> so it's been around for 30 years, but um, quite a difficult concept. Um, it was new. And when you look at crossing the chasm between early adopters late adopters and those that are middle of the road, um, we're, we're technically changing a behavior. So we have that behavior or that, um, that behavior recognition and that, that um, practice recognition. We've, we've been trained to do this, this is all we know, and we're not gonna do anything new. And so in 2010, there's a standardization committee that did a supplement published in uh, Rhinology, as a matter of fact that said, hey, y'all need to be doing objective nasal measurements. Objective measurements. And nasal flow, yeah, nasal flow is important. Fast forward, now remember, back in the early 2000s and 90s when rhinomanometry came to fruition, it was an old obsolete kind of um, system. So there is a lot of negative uh, literature out there, a lot of negative research, negative connotations as far as reimbursement from just a few companies because he didn't look at the trajectory of development, where in 2015, Dr. Vaught and his team looked at over 35,000 readings of rhinomanometry, four-phase rhinomanometry. And that was a pivotal turning point because they found that four-phase rhinomanometry is clinically comparable and compatible to the subjective symptoms presented by patients. What does that mean? What the patient is telling you can be found on the numeric output data of rhinomanometry. And that was, again, published in 2015. And then in 2016-17 is when, in my scenario, GM Instruments updated the software to have the four-phase rhinomanometry aspect. So that's been the historical perspective and how this has all come to fruition. And that's what brought me to where I am today. <laughs>
Karen, can I ask you, because, you know, there's lots of people listening that might not know what this is. You know, what is rhinomanometry? Can you, can you tell us what it is exactly for, for the people that have no clue what this is right now? Yeah, sure. So um, there is some confusion on the market. I'll just point that out. When you say rhinomanometry, oh, I've used that forever. And I hear that. Karen, I've used that forever. Okay, tell me more. And when I say tell me more, we're talking about acoustic rhinometry, which is an acoustic pulse sound wave that comes out a sound tube, is bounced off the nasal passages to measure the geometric areas of the nasal passages. So it is a structural measurement. On the other hand, you have rhinomanometry. And, and I think that the longer the word, the better the technology. <laughs> and so rhinomanometry is an actual non, and they're both non-invasive, but it's a non-invasive test that looks at your nasal function during active breathing. What does that mean? You are measuring the transnasal pressure drops against a pressure gradient during, a, it's very quick, it's like 15 seconds. It's very oh, quick. Wow. It's okay. really yeah. quick. And so you can see that you can do it anteriorly, you can do it posteriorly. And anterior, you do it just one nostril at a time. And posterior, you would do it bilaterally, you can see bilaterally. But what does that tell you? It looks at the retroglossal, retropalatal pressure changes when you're breathing. And then when you look at the grand scheme of things, nasal resistance dictates the genioglossal muscle. It's also attached in its own way in connection to diaphragmatic breathing. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole sequelae of events that occur just because nasal, uh, nasal resistance. That's why breathing function, nasal function, not nasal structure, rhinometry, but nasal function rhinomanometry is so important. And when you look at the, the physics and, and, the, and the theory of the aer nasal aerodynamics, the first, you know, we, we look at upper air resistance. You hear that a lot in the sleep world, UARS, UARS. Well, UARS is dictated by nasal resistance and the increase in negative intrathoracic pressure, which causes a collapse in the back of the throat. So the collapsibility is not a structural measurement. It is a pressure flow relationship. That's very that's important. Only, yeah, that's only measured with rhinomanometry. You need a pneumotachometer, you need a flow head, you need pressure. So when you put the mask on, it's a mask, and it's got like four tubes, for example. And I say about the NR6 rhinomanometer because that's the only one available. It's FDA approved. There have been some in the past, but they're no longer... Either the company's not a business or they're not really that you know prominently used here. So we're it, you know, for lack of a better way to say it, we're it. So you'll see different, you'll see two tubes come out, red and green. That's your flow. And then you see your pressure. And that's the black and the blue ports. And when you have a mask on, it's looking at the pressure changes between the nose and the back in the pharyngeal area. It can detect that. But the other beauty of it is, is that you can look at the data outcome, which we'll get to, but you can look at how well someone is nasal cycling. That's important, especially when you're looking at treatment options. But you can also see in the allergy world, the different mucosal membrane component to it. So 
That's that's kind of differentiation between the two. Oh, the one is just a pulse down wave, like a sonar, a sonar up your nose, like on a ship. And one is active breathing, transnasal pressure drops and changes that's detected through the um, the computer software in measurement, and then you and then results show in your data output. So my data output, it was a patient that's been mm-hmm. through multiple dentists, mm-hmm. multiple things. But a very simple thing showed up. So there's these lines, and there's these beautiful sine waves like this. They could be short within this XYZ axis. They could be short. Short is most likely mild apnea to moderate, even severe apnea. When they're longer, because there's more flow and less resistance, that's where it's normalizes. Towards the normal are the longer ones. But also, when you see one and you see on the inspiration is an open loop, okay, your external valve is collapsing. There is a valve issue. So now do you send them to an ENT or can you improve the nasal by opening it up? Because that caudal test would be positive on that person because they would collapse. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, fascinating, is not only that, but if it goes outside these two lines, okay, now you got a posture issue. Did you know that the nasal resistance causes posture issues? The nasal. Uh, you know, so what, again, yes, you got to so, get the physical therapist involved because it's, it's not just the nasal resistance. You're going to, yes, the external uh, valves, but then the posture is showing up how the nasal is causing the posture. You could call it scoliosis. You can cause its smooth compensation, unparalleled compensation. In fact, this is the nasal. When you, you know, don't talk to Martha, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead no, I was just going to say, when you don't use your nose to breathe, it, it changes your head position, right? And that starts changing the, the spine compensates mm-hmm. all the way down the chain, but, and, and the muscles, all the muscles start to change the muscles that you use to breathe. When you mouth breathe, it's all neck and chest muscles. It's these extra accessory muscles that we shouldn't be using. Our mm-hmm. head starts to move more and more forward. We're already forward with these computers, but that even causes the tension. But to that's stay. that whole survival mechanism of going like this. In the typical on a woman, the UARS, the UARS, because this compression of the C1 into the occiput shows up as anxiety, depression. Yeah, can't yeah. breathe, can't breathe, but something's off, and it could be mistaken as depression, anxiety, put them on medication. So now we have a woman, a UARS woman, who it's instead of looking at the breathing, they're putting on medication. So now they're disengaging the corpus callosum. It's not giving the information correctly because of these so-called low-dose antidepressants that will just stop the anxiety at the brainstem. Not good. No. So Dr. Martha, you have a great point because I just had this like long conversation with um, a chiropractor friend of mine and the bantering back and forth. It was just, I was, it was rather entertaining. I was like, we should, we should write a book. But <laughs> when, you, when you look at structure, and this is why I say, and I get denigrated to a degree. They're like, oh, you're just a nurse. Uh, you're not a real doctor. Okay. Okay. I'm not an MD. <laughs> but um, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of experience. I've been working this for working with this for five and a half years and studying this. And what's really interesting is that I always say that um, that your your static measurements are irrelevant in the presence of nasal ma- uh, nasal resistance. Well, that doesn't make sense, Karen. Well, it does. For example, 
Um, pharyngometry is very big on the market. A lot of dentists use it. Um, and they look at anterior, posterior, you know, the AP movement with the oral appliance. Well, hang on. And Dr. Jennifer, you know this well. There's more to an AP measurement and movement. And when you look at nasal resistance and posture, if you use a static measurement tool like pharyngometry, even CBCT, that C-spine issue or a lesion or even a shoulder issue, if you're tilted, will cause a, um, uh, an impression on that, that reading that can also give you an erroneous measurement. So you're gonna measure and treat somebody based on this reading when there's a posture problem. Now, I worked with an actual sleep doctor in a dentist office and was training him on rhinomanometry. I said, let's play, let's play Dr. Justin. And, I, and, and he did it, he was slouched over and he was like 0 0.42 Pasquals. I said, sit up straight and he did and he was perfectly normal. I said, test my hypothesis here. Let's look at the TMJ joint. And I said, just put something like a bowl and bot, just something that will manipulate the mandible, this little hanging, you know, apparatus that we have on our face. It's just hanging there, right? So he gets, he gets um, a device, he puts it in, he goes from perfectly normal to 0.41. I said, congratulations, you have proof of my hypothesis. That ineffective treatment could have caused now a new problem. And if you look at the data in Dental State Practice Magazine from 2017, it's, it clearly says there are 200,000 ineffective oral appliances done a year. Now, if we just tested their breathing, we would know who's a true candidate and track their progression in breathing by watching that pressure drop. You're saying that the appliance that they put in just to, to do that test caused reduced nasal breathing? Yes, his oh nasal resistance God. went up. In fact, there's a study from Dr. Holly who looked at oral appliances in AHI. Um, and he found that the AHI was increased by 50% with an oral appliance in their mouth. So there was something that was blocking that flow. There was an obstruction there just in the oral cavity. And there's uh, an orthodontist brought this, this study to my attention. I said, how fascinating, because here we are putting all these different oral appliances in, and we look at the materials that are being used. Is it a bone to bone? Is it a tooth to tooth kind of device? What are we using here? Um, and that's why Dr. Martha and I, and a few other people are gonna look at this. At what point, when you put a device in, at what point does that transnasal pressure drop? Is there an increase when you put that device in there? Now, when you look at the position of people sitting to supine, recumbency plays a huge factor in nasal resistance. In fact, it increases. And so through rhinomanometry, you can look at these different parameters all through research, not me. Yes, people say you have a vested interest. Of course I do. I work for GM, but even more importantly, I'm a clinician by, I'm still licensed. I have a duty to educate the public and practitioners that, hey, we can do better by helping our patients breathe better. And so you can look at somebody from sitting to supine and determine just in the change of nasal resistance if they're an OSA patient. So there's been some talk and discussion about flow, flow, flow. Okay, 
Well, spirometry, like nasal spirometry, and we have that at GM, but, um, but nasal spirometry, let's talk about that for a minute. They'll say, oh, it's just as good. No, 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 no. First of all, it's majority of it is oral. And if you look at expiratory flow, it's like lungs, asthma, and things like that. But when you look at the, 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 um, the echelon, so to speak, about nasal function and breathing, you've got nasal resistance that is dictated by nasal pressure drops that's going to dictate the velocity that's going to ultimately dictate nasal airflow and the limitations. So why start here where you can start up here to see your resistance? Right. Why would you look at flow when you can look at resistance? Yeah, and follow it, monitor it, put the appliance in. Yeah, exactly. In children who get ear infections, who are having tonsils issue, you could put little turbos and look at the resistance. So we're modifying some of the things we do. Just in anything, this is the whole thing. It's not device dependent, it's not company dependent, it's just how does the patient respond to it? Right. And you know what, Dr. Martha, and, and when you look at the grand scale, let's talk about children for just a brief minute. Most children are diagnosed with ADHD between the ages of five and eight, mm -hmm. right? And, and I've worked in children's mental health back in the 90s. Now I'm dating myself. I feel awful. How many children did we unnecessarily medicate with Thoculin, Metadate, Ritalin, all these ADHD medications that were stimulants that probably affected their sleep when it was really a breathing problem? So my point is that now we have rhinomanometry. We can measure all these children in this range and we can look at is it because the symptoms are similar? ADHD and, and OSA symptoms are similar, right? But what we know is that daytime sleepiness is directly related to high nasal resistance. And interestingly enough, I'm doing a current, I'm currently doing a retrospective study looking at data in children with an oral appliance, like a tooth positioner, and um, and how how the, the parents are answering the questions. And the data when we publish it, it's amazing. You look at this, you're like, whoa, some of the kids had their symptoms decrease with an appliance and some didn't. So now we get into this bigger discussion between pediatricians, psychiatrists, psychologists, and dentists. This web of, of efficiency in breathing is growing and growing and growing just beyond physical therapy like Dr. Hobson and positioning. I mean, there's so, it's, it's a spider. <laughs> No, and, the, and children, not, as Dr. Hobson will talk about this, children are not simple because they have nasal resistance, but they also had a tongue tie. Now you got to do biofunctional therapy, but they don't know how to breathe out their, their nose. They don't know how to posture correctly. Yeah. And then the adhesions, the ties decreases their flexibility. They lift like this as a dentist. So it goes exactly. all the way to toes. And we have to absolutely require a physical therapist in there. Mm -hmm. Not the function, you got to train the function, right? The function of the nose. And th these, these kids are all hyperinflated. Like their ribs are high. They're up, they're breathing up in their chest and they are not getting good oxygen flow. They're not exchanging their gas in their lower lobes like they should be. But, mm -hmm. you know, Dr. Karen, what I wanted to ask you, what do you do? What do you do with this information? So once you have the flow and once you have this measurement, 
Yeah. What are you saying to recommend for the practitioner, for the parents? Like what, 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 what should we do with this information? So that's a great question. So when you look at this data output, it looks very overwhelming. It really does. You know, this beautiful graphic that's a, you know, a quad, four quadrants. You go from inspiration to expiration, right and left, right? So, you know, when you have that high resistance, it looks like a squashed X, <laughs> like Dr. Martha was saying. But when you look at the mean resistance, the, the, the end all be all is the mean resistance. And now the software has been updated. So you can see in the little box, it'll say mean resistance, right? So in my infinite wisdom and craziness, I thought, you know what? There's no software out there that can help practitioners and guide them through what does this data mean? What do I do with it now? Okay, great. I see the graphic show the camp breathing, but what is all this numeric nonsense? What does all this mean? So that's why I created the Daphne scoring system. I did. Um, so now it'll, it'll launch next week and it's going to be a web-based um, access. Um, it's like an annual licensing agreement. Um, that you can get the license to go in behind the firewall and work with actually the three technologies for nasal breathing, rhinometry, rhinomanometry, and the peak nasal inspiratory flow meter. And so now this software has software capabilities. So the practitioner can go in and enter that mean resistance or uh, rhinometry reading. And when you hit the arrow next, it'll walk you through the algorithm is that normal or abnormal based on research? Is it normal or abnormal? And I looked at over 744 studies to create this. <laughs> so it's been a huge, a monumental task. But so once you understand where they are on that spectrum of nasal breathing or nasal disease or dysfunction, um, that'll allow you to understand, okay, allergens. Is there something that I'm seeing? So for example, patient comes in, you always do a baseline. And then, and this is according to Quad AI, the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. And they clearly say when you do say when you do a nasal provocation test, which is what it's called, anything you spread the nose is going to be a nasal provocation test. You have the patient do your baseline, do your spray, wait 10 minutes, and then remeasure them. If you see like an antibiotic therapy, an area under the curve, you know, as far as efficacy. When you see, if you see a large area between your first congested reading and your second or your decongested reading, that's a mucosal membrane component, right? So that's gonna be where I can pull in allergy. And if it's less than a certain amount, percentage of change, that could be a structural problem. But like Dr. Martha pointed out, you can also see they call it they call it a na they call it nasal valve hysteris. That's the, the term they use, but it's a it's a nasal valve um, phenomenon, and you can see that loop. So that would tell any practitioner that regard. Remember, two thirds of resistance occurs right here in the first three centers of the of the nasal vestibule area. So no matter what you do, stand them on their head, lay them sideways until that area is fixed. You're still going to have that that velocity flow and resistance problem, right? That's where your ENT will come into play. So I like, and I know it's not promotional, but I like the um, the VEER procedure where it's a radio frequency remodeling of the nasal valve 
Um, and I'm sure there's other techniques out there, but I, I'm, I'm not, that's what I'm most familiar with from my ENT background and I world. actually had that done to me a few years ago. Yeah. To oh, just tell kind me, of, yeah. How, what'd you think? Did you it, like it? You know, it, 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 it made more space in, in, uh -huh. in the nasal cavity. So I think mm -hmm. that helped me with my, with my flow, mm -hmm. but yeah, this was after a nasal septum surgery, you know, was improved my nasal breathing, but not completely. That mm -hmm. actually helped more. So interesting. Yeah. And and Mar Dr. Martha and I have talked about that. Like on a CBCT, you can see a posterior, a posterior deviation, right? And if you try to expand, like do a transverse expansion, people think, oh, you can open up, you know, drop the, the maxillary nasal floor and, and just kind of open everything up. But what's interesting, and again, I've and I've sat in just in my whole career, hundreds and hundreds of sinus surgeries. And now I'm thinking back, how well are they breathing after that? Are they going to come back for surgery again? Are they going to re be a, you know, a repeat revision case? Um, and interestingly enough, about 12% are within the first year. So if we can really look at how someone's breathing, if there's that posterior deviation, can we get that fixed by the ENT, then come back to the dentist? There's this whole ebb and flow of communication and collaboration among all specialties. There it's really is. Big collaboration yeah. and dentists are stepping in because in the posterior, I know I'm not supposed to be as a dentist able to touch the posterior at all. It's supposed to be an ENT. And when I use the MSE, the skeletal expanders with the mm -hmm. mini implants, you can mm -hmm. change the posterior. And mm -hmm. I'm in the process of measuring it now because it takes time to do these cases. Right. And so it's really, so now when the nose is that bad, I don't send immediately to an ENT. We get the, the interdisciplinary examination conclusion, expand them, widen, but the question, will we only widen towards the anterior or have actual cognitive thought about, is it possible for the posterior on that person? Will it make a bigger difference? Let's measure it. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. The MSCs are, are you know, it's a newer device, but I've, I've seen that the images of before and after and how much that nasal cavity actually widens. And I, I don't know, I wanna, I wanna say it's four millimeters or around four oh, to six even more. But the question so, is, they sustain it because now they have to learn how to breathe and yeah. you've taught them how to breathe. And the, I find that it do, doesn't, like everything, like when I, I did a, I went to a program for the nose for surgeons and I brought up the ideas that they all talked about the relapse. It could be 30%, could be 70%. And it's patient patient dependent. It's not necessarily surgeon dependent because there yeah. might be a surgeon. So it's, it's a human, it's not simple. But if they grind, there's still an issue in their brain. And that I learned from sleep physicians. There's a neurological issue. It's not easy to say it's just the oxygen desaturation, the, the oxygen that's dropping. It's not a simple thing. But with measuring the nasal, you can understand how many, who is next in the interdisciplinary team that we're gonna be working with? Who is yeah. going to be a priority? You can't give a poor patient eight people to work on them. No, and yeah, when, that, when you send patients, sorry, Karen, real quick, when yeah. you send patients to um, the Hobson Institute to do the breathing clinic retraining, yes. it's like people are not used to cleaning their nose and using no. their nose. They think their nose is supposed to work without any help if it's stuffy. I'm like, no, you have to create that airflow mm -hmm. or else it'll just continue to be congested. Cumulate, to, right? Mucky, and, but, like a pipe. 
and 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 the cleaning of the nose like uh, it's, it's hard to get some people to do that to actually start getting that airflow through but anyway karen what were you saying oh no i was gonna say that um dr martha brings up a good point because this came up on social media they were talking about um nocturnal bruxism like y'all mm -hmm. is connected to the nose the bruxism and you're you're there's that limbic um there's that limbic association so your brain is trained to grind until it retrains itself. There's, I mean, this whole concept of breathing, um, I'm glad that it's getting a lot of recognition, but we're missing the mark on measuring nasal function. And I say, trademarked, you don't know how well you're breathing until you measure how well you're breathing. Think about that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Because people just like bypass the nose, you know, they bypass it. A lot of times they don't address it. You know, you're right. It's you're this right. little tiny organ, but it, it's so powerful. You know, I mean, there's really the nose knows. And, the, and nose knows. the nose, I did a talk about that last year. The nose knows it truly does. Yeah, it's, a, it's so big too inside. Like you think it's just this, but it's like, within the face where the turbinates are the sign like the whole cavity it's so made for what we need it for is nasal breathing but we don't use that whole part of our face but well, like, i have officially declared it as its own organ this it is, own it tiny is. organ but it's also <laughs> one of the most important primitive i call it organs the olfactory bulb it yeah. is so primitive and is so emotional and so limbic that makes the nose even more interesting because it's it's more than what it is. Like melatonin, melatonin was just a little molecule. Melatonin is a hormone-like. So yeah. we're going to discover more about the nasal and the olfactory and the limbic. Yeah. Shockingly, the more we know what happens, the less we really know. <laughs> well, right. We, and, we, and it was interesting too, is you, you talk about the olfactory bulb, when you, people are like, oh, I can breathe, I can breathe. And when I, you know, I would work with different, doctors and ask them, well, how, how well do you know that they're breathing? Well, the patient said they can breathe, but when you look at <laughs> the nasal air, yeah, when you, when you look at the nasal aerodynamics and if you don't have flow up over that olfactory cleft, mm. that's still improper breathing. That's not normal breathing. That's mm. how we're supposed to breathe up over the olfactory cleft area that influences speech, smell, taste, memories. <laughs> memories so we Sleep. we <laughs> I know. dr karen where do people like for the people that are listening that aren't clinicians because we have clinicians and we have non-clinicians also listening mm -hmm. um where, where do people go to to get this done who does this sure so the way back when um in, in the now obsolete it was mostly ent's allergists allergists are still predominantly using that because of the nasal provocation testing and to see how well the air flows and if there's an environmental issue an allergic issue that's causing these um, mucosal membrane issues um ENT not so much but it's mainly been in in the eu europe asia uk australia off the chart and what's interesting it's more so than the us us i i just we're just stuck in this conundrum of 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 these protective behaviors. This is the way I've done it, and I'm not changing ways. Um, so this is my Goliath. 
we are making headway. There are some very big um, world-renowned institutions and practitioners that are finally getting it. And this is a voice in numbers kind of thing too. Yeah. Um, but we do have world-renowned institutions and practitioners that are adopting and, and kind of, you know, the light bulbs are going off like, you know, you might be onto something. So, um, yeah, it's a daunting task, but we're getting out there. So there are, to your point in question, there are practitioners out there, dental, the dental world is starting to pick up on it. Yeah. Um, we do have, you know, just there are distributors that carry this product around. Um, so it's a matter of just, you know, asking your doctor, I want this test. And that's the thing. We have to be more proactive in our own healthcare. Can and I get this done? Doctor, and if you're a doctor and you want more information, just, yeah. Yeah. How do, how do, how do we connect to you? How do we connect to you? Their website, is there an email? Sure. So um, you can go to gm-instruments.com. They have a training video so you can actually see how this test is done, um, the, the, the steps it takes to set one up and actually do the test. Um, as far as the numeric and clinical portion, that's where I come into play. So all my contact information is on GM Instruments website, but you can also go to uh, Karen D at gm-instruments.com um, and send me an email that way. And then on the clinical side in education, I have FACT Healthcare Consulting Group. So I can do that off the cuff because you have to look at the liability issues between a manufacturer kind of dictating what's normal, not normal. Um, we have to be careful about that in oversight, right? Um, so I did, it's fact, F-A-C-T-H-C-G.com. And all of my information is on there as well. That's great. I think this has been a wonderful podcast of, about how we can really learn more about nasal measurements, nasal breathing measurements. I never realized how, how much you could actually quantify and objectively measure this. So yeah, it's really great. interesting. I mean, all this time in the medical world, um, we measure blood pressure. You know, everything's been numerics, wound dressings, you know, and I've worked with a lot of physical therapists, amazing physical therapists when I was a CRNI doing home infusion. And we'd work together in collaboration with wound care and everything's measured, you know, blood work as a measurement. Why are we not looking at breathing? We screen, we, we screen vision, we screen hearing, but we're not screening our breathing. Why? I think a lot of this could be a, a preventive approach, right? Um, but we just have to get, get out of this mindset and just step out of our comfort zone. But more importantly, Dr. Jennifer, is that this does have a revenue stream. If you look at 20 years of CMS reimbursement over this time, there's been an incremental increase. And if you recall, back in 2011, 2012, when the ACA Affordable Care Act came into play, a lot of sleep uh, PSG testing reimbursement was dropped by 25%. Hmm. Not rhinomanometry. Every year we got it. In fact, from 2021 to 2022, a physician fee, we got a 4%, uh, there's a 4% in increase in reimbursement. So it's around 61. It, it's it's going to be MAC location dependent, right? But for the national average through CMS, it'll be about $63. The highest EOB that I have seen was out of New Jersey at $88. Okay. And so, that's, that's, that's if you that's bill for it at your, in it, that, that's from a dentist billing for it or a medical doctor medical. billing? Medical. medical. It's all yeah. medical. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. And there, there was some argument. I had a doctor that said, oh, care is not reimbursable. Well, there are, so like Blue Cross Blue Shield National does recognize, so the CPT code for that for this is 92512. It's 92512. And you can, you know, go ahead and check. So for example, Blue Cross Blue Shield in Alabama, I have an orthodontist who bought a narrow system down there. And Blue Cross Blue Shield Alabama covers it. Um, um, Anthem, you know, the national level, they observe it. But again, each subsidiary is different, but a majority of them do. And Medicaid does as well. Mm-hmm. Great. So it's Great. a win-win situation. Yeah. You're helping your patients identify the nose yeah. and you can mm-hmm. actually get reimbursed for it. That's great. Yes. Yes. Okay. Any, any last comment, Dr. Cortez for Karen? Oh, we covered so much. I'm I know. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. So stay on for a second and we're going to, we're going to close out. I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming. Hang tight. And, um, Everyone thank who's you. listening, thank, thank you thank for your, your you. listening. <laughs> and please let us know how much you enjoyed the show by leaving us a review. Thank you so much. And thank you. Thank you for this platform to get the message out. I truly appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Breathing Lab with Dr. Jenny. 